Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about organizing a design space. What do you need? when you're designing games? What do you need when you're putting together prototypes? And we're talking to Sin Fung Lim, the designer of games like Belfort, Akrotiri, Junk Art, some really cool games, some games with tons of different pieces, tons of different components and whatnot. And so, Sin, really uh, appreciate your time, man. Glad you're here. No problem. It's good to meet you, Gabe. Yeah, you too, man. And so, let's just give me kind of a quick bio, who you are, you know, maybe some games I didn't mention that you've worked on. Just, you know, in case people don't know who you are, tell them. Oh, okay. Uh, my name is Sen. I'm a board game designer from London, Ontario, Canada, the second best London in the world. That's right. And I co-design typically with my BFF, Jay Cormier, who can't be here today because he is the father of newborn twins. So he is very, very busy. And I've designed lots of games, including the ones that you've mentioned. Uh, and currently I'm working on and have produced a bunch of games that are more licensed ventures. So based on TV shows like Orphan Black, movies like The Godfather. Um, we just recently released Dungeons and Dragons, Rock, Paper, Wizards. So being able to work with a bunch of really high profile licenses has been fun. It's been a great experience. Um, in my day job, I'm a psychology professor. And yeah, that's that's what I do. Awesome. I didn't realize you were a psychology professor. How does that, this is a totally separate question, but how does that play into to your game designs? Do you like, do you ever like test things out with those kids? Oddly enough, uh, I don't necessarily test them out with the kids, but um, I do use a lot of what I learned as a, in, in my profession as a pediatric therapist in game design because it's, it's basically, so I come from a very play therapy oriented slant in cognition and development and so i use that kind of background in my game design in terms of that's sort of how i see the world and so that's how games end up coming out um, a lot of psychology in game design is it's it's very powerful in terms of you know motivating um, how we use reward systems and penalty systems and things like that it's all, you know, basic, basic human psychology, uh, but having a background in it helps me to, you know, see it a little clearer, I guess. I, I work with another fellow who his his degree in psychology, his area of study is evil. And it's it's so funny working with him because he sees things in a very different light than I do from a pediatric development standpoint. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just interesting seeing how the different areas of psychology can kind of merge and now we have evil children, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, he might be the guy to uh, to consult when you're working on a dungeon crawl and you need a really good bad guy. Yeah, right? Yeah, he's the guy to talk to there. Uh, yeah. But that's cool, man. Now, that'd be a whole other episode of just some really interesting things we could get into as far as design theory and motivations and, and all yeah. that stuff. But anyway, let's get back to the, the normal uh, topic of what we're, we're talking about today. So you've got this sure. article on your website, and your website's awesome. Like I've, I've linked to it so many times, different articles oh, you've talked about in you know, how to get published, how to talk to 
publishers, how to do different design things, design theory, tons and tons of great resources and information. But one of those blog articles is about the design space, organizing a design space, what that looks like, kind of some ideas that you've learned or things you've figured out over the years. And so that's really what kind of gave me the idea for this episode and why I wanted to talk to you specifically. And so just tell me a little bit about your design space, what it looks like, uh, the different components you have in there for, for your games. Oh, okay. So my design space is um, a sort of interesting mix between a music studio and a game design studio. Uh, I do a lot of music. I uh, haven't done it for a while, but um, I have my turntables and my instruments and stuff set up here as well. Um, so that's it's a half and half. And then my kids practice their trumpet and the violin in this room too. So it's a little bit of a, an, a catch-all. But my room is basically divided into a computer workstation with a printing station uh, and an area where I can uh, cut and fabricate. So the number one tool I think that I use on uh, you know the most regular basis is a good paper cutter. Um, so I'm afraid of guillotine cutters. So I use a rotary cutter, a rotary trimmer, really, um, which has a guided blade, uh, pressure, push down on it, slide and cut. I've got it down to the point where I, I think I can make a 60-card deck of cards in a minute. Wow. So and it, it's because I use not only the rotary cutter, but I use my second favorite prototyping tool, which is card sleeves. Uh, card sleeves are great because then you don't actually have to worry about how precise your cuts are. Right, and here's a pro tip that I often give out: is I always size my cards smaller than a regular playing card. So when I'm sleeving and de-sleeving, it's like milliseconds as opposed to trying to shove it in there precisely. Mm-hmm. And when they're smaller, you can be a little less precise with your cuts as well. If they're bigger, like actual poker size, and you miscut, like on an angle, uh, your card won't fit into your sleeve. So that's just a pro tip smaller cards and make them in sleeves so that you don't have to worry about perfect, you know, and corner clipping and all that kind of stuff. Right. So we do have a die cutter. We do have a, like a corner clip die cut, but we haven't used it in like decades because <laughs> sleeves are just easier. The other thing that sleeves gives you is a colored back. So if you're sorting many, many different decks uh, for different games, then having that extra colored back means you don't have to waste that money on ink. So you're not producing the back of it. Registration on a duplicate, like a, a duplex printer, they're often it's often really poor. So you often will get misalignment on the front and the back. So this is just a, a cheap and easy way for us to do it. And then when we have um, a new set of cards come up for the same game, we just unsleeve the old ones, put new ones in, and that that works out for us. Um, the old cards I just save and I just use them to prototype new games with. So it's always that kind of renew, reuse, recycle idea. And uh, the paper that I use as another pro tip is if you're using no sleeves, you kind of have to go with a heavier cardstock. If you're using sleeves, uh, even penny sleeves, like clear single cent sleeves that you can get at any, you can get that at the dollar store now, you will have to use a card back or uh, like an old magic card or something. Everybody has like 6,000, <laughs> right. uh, you know, forests or swamps. Right. Use those and you can stick your, uh, just a paper card in front of that. Uh, but because I just like, I don't like leaving the card backs in there for some reason, I don't know. Um, they seem to bulk up the deck too much. 
uh, that's another that's a bad thing about card sleeves that they'll add bulk to your deck. And so I find when I add the card sleeve plus the backer cards plus the paper that the decks get physically unwieldy. Mm-hmm. I'm five two, so I have small hands. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then if I use what is called cover stock, which is heavier than your regular bond paper but lighter than card stock. Um, you get this kind of best of both worlds. And the reason why it's best of both worlds is that it's thick enough that it has body, so you can shuffle that deck just fine uh, when it's put in a sleeve. has weight to it. You can throw them. They're just like a regular card. But it's lighter, so it, it will, it will um, survive printing better if you have printers that kind of roll your paper around instead of a flat feed. Uh, cover stock will go back to its flat shape easier than the heavier cardstock which kind of retains that curve to it for a little while longer another thing that happens with cover stock is because it's thinner i can cut more sheets at once so that's how i get that magic 60 cards in 60 seconds Uh, i can slice through four to five sheets instead of two sheets of cardstock with my cutter so um that's just another tip is uh use cover stock instead of card stock other things in my prototype area i don't know there's lots of stuff i'm looking around i have um so the paper cutter is number one for me i use that a lot printer a good printer um i'm looking into getting an eco tank at some point just because i i have a laser and i i've had a laser for years and i like it but then one day i used off-brand uh cartridges and the toner blew up inside the printer and so i had to go buy another printer <laughs> yeah. and i bought this you know cheap canon inkjet and it's worked fine i just don't like going out and buying you know a hundred dollars worth of ink yeah. every you know month or so because of printing so what is an eco tank an eco tank is a refillable tank system where uh the the printer has these tanks with hoses that fill the cartridges inside of the printer and so you fill up the tanks and they fill up the cartridges, and it's it's basically like have having the ability to refill your own cartridges. I gotcha. So it's much much cheaper. Yeah. And the volume lasts longer. And if you're you're, you're using your ink um, frequently, it doesn't dry up. So it's there's less of a concern for people who are high volume printers. Um, and so that that may be where I go. I don't know. It might be that or another laser. I do like lasers for a lot of other reasons, but we'll see. Uh, so a good printer. Uh, a good computer, which is funny coming from me because I use uh, a Mac tower that is as old as my youngest son. So he, it's nine years old <laughs> now, meaning that it can't do some things, but it remarkably does a lot of things that other computers can't do. Right. So a good computer with software that will allow you to edit your images is very important, especially now that more people are getting into Tabletop Simulator or Tabletopia which is another invaluable tool, by the way. Spend the 10 bucks, get Tabletop Simulator, play around with it, see if you like it. It's worth $10 just to see if you like creating in it. I've played with publishers. I've pitched to publishers using Tabletop Simulator, and it's been a very powerful tool overall. I like it better than Tabletopia for a couple reasons, but we don't have to get into that now. But uh, just having the ability to edit graphics uh, software, um, you can use freeware like GIMP, and you can store your images online on Imgur. You can get expensive, expensive software like Adobe Suite, the Creative Suite, and be cloud-based. All of that is fine. It depends on your level of income. 
uh, your level of understanding of the programs and how they work and what you really want in the end. The outcome is going to be roughly the same. Right. It's a question of process and uh, ability to transfer files between you know people and whatnot. So yeah, Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of GIMP. I've been using that one for a while. But I've also been using mm. Canva, which is just online. It's a website, and Canva, C-A-N-V-A dot com, for anybody who wants to check mm-hmm. it out. And I'll have a link to it in the show. I have a link to all this stuff in the show notes. But I love Canva because it's so easy. There's tons of different icons and shapes and resources and it's just super easy they store all the stuff on their servers so it doesn't clog up my computer that's another one i've gotten into i don't know if you've you've had a chance to try that Um, i you know what i just saw that being um talked about the other day and it actually might have been you i don't know uh who talked about canva being the thing that they were using and i'd like to look into it i think it's definitely something especially if there's good versioning and file control as Mm -hmm. well as sharing Using Canva, that might be great because uh, Jay, my design partner, lives on the West Coast, so we don't often see each other. We just share files electronically. Uh, even the people who I design with who live, you know, five minutes away from me by car, we still share files electronically because we have, you know, other things to do, like work and life and all that. Kind <laughs> right, of stuff. all the, the good stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think with that one, the, the free doesn't have the sharing so much, but if you pay, it's not much a month. You can have like a team, and everybody has access, and everybody can see the same thing at the same time. So that's kind of cool. Uh, mm-hmm. So you're not actually having to send it; it's just already there. So when they log right. in, it's already there. Um, and the editing tools are built in, as opposed yeah. to sharing like a graphic file across. You know, Google Docs, or not Google Docs, but just across like um, the Google Drive, mm-hmm. where you both have to have access to the cloud um, for Adobe Creative Suite or something like that. Exactly. This one, Canva has the tools built in, so we're all creating in Canva. Right. That might be that might be the way to go. Yeah, check it something. out. Yeah, yeah, I will. Maybe I, maybe I'll have somebody from Canva on the podcast, and we can talk. <laughs> we can talk through. Well, it with them. I mean that. I think there are so many tools that developers and designers of board games use that they're you know doing themselves a disservice the companies by not getting on to the shows and the podcasts i asked actually for my show which is later on today the meeple syrup show i asked for you know tabletopia and tabletop simulator to you know send somebody to talk and neither of them did and we're still probably doing them a good service by talking about their stuff but they could have done a much better job than the guys I had and the guys I had were great and they've used it a ton, but they're still not, you know, the de facto experts from the source. Anyway. Anyway, so going back to the design space, so I can see here in the video, you've got like a big shelf in the background with tons of stuff. Is that part of your design space? Yeah. So my shelf is ordered in terms of, you know, prototypes that I am using, uh, like right now developing prototypes that are on the shelf that have been sent away for revision uh, for publishers to take a look at. And then uh, my camera equipment and my drill press and, you know, my laminator and a bunch of all that other stuff is over there on the shelves. Underneath the table that you see over here um, is where I keep all my bits. So I have tons and tons and tons of bits. I'm a little bit of a of a pack rat when it comes to that. So I'll just... Well, I will never... I have never rated a game for parts... Unless I buy it at like the Goodwill, mm-hmm. I will buy just parts just to have them. Yeah, just in I case. Feel, I, just in case I feel much more comfortable when I know that I have a part that could possibly be used for that if I ever design a game. 
Uh, I mean, Jay and I have designed games basically on a part. We've said, oh, look, that's cool. That should be used in a game. Oh, let's make a game around it. And we make a game. So that does happen, that components become the focal point of, uh, of a design uh, or a spark for a mechanic, which is cool. Um, and I, did, I basically ba- break my tools and things up into, you know, does it break things apart? Does it stick stuff together? So the, all the blades and scissors and knives go in one drawer, things that cut things apart and mm-hmm. break things apart. Um, and then, um, oh, in that in that particular box, I have uh, tools like, so they're called arc punches, mm-hmm. which are basically hammer-driven die cutters. So you hold it over the paper or leather or cardboard. In my case, it's usually cardboard, which I'll talk about in a second. And you punch it. So I can get circles and hexes and squares and whatnot just by using a hammer and this arc punch. So I use that to make a lot of tokens. It just makes tokens look and feel better. The other thing that it does is when you use square corners on anything, uh, the corners peel Mm -hmm. up. And so having rounded corners makes things a little more durable as well. And... Also, if everything's a square, then everything looks the same. So if you are able to get shape differentiation in your prototypes, it helps people who may be colorblind. It helps people organize stuff visually and cognitively a little bit better. So definitely, um, you know, we talk about that with colorblindness. We talk about, you know, registration in three different channels. So color, shape, and then some text or picture on that to further discriminate, you know, what is that thing um, for cards or tokens. And so having a physical shape that is different on the outline of it than another piece will help it as well. So arc punches are a big part of what I, I use. And you can get those at Michael's or Hobby Lobby. I mean, there's so many punches or die cuts you can buy that are inexpensive that work, Yeah, you know, pretty well. I've used in different prototypes that create, I mean, they've got hundreds of different shapes and it's mainly for scrapbooking yeah. so you have to you know edge your way in there with all the moms who are scrapbooking and just <laughs> take them from them uh, but they work really well yeah and so those are like handheld punches um so i have tool punches which are actually use a hammer on mm-hmm. so you you hit it with a hammer from the top it's more manly uh, that way well not it's not a question of manliness because <laughs> if, you, if you you can see me and you'll you'll <laughs> notice that i am not the most manly of men but what it allows you to do is line up things a little more accurately mm. And also punch through harder substrates. So um, when I talk about cardboard, um, so a pro tip is go to uh, your local photographer or framer's place and see if you can steal all their offcuts for matte board. Matte board is made to be cut. And so it's a little different than uh, things like chipboard, which have their fibers running in a different way. Uh, So matte board is made to be cut, sliced, and beveled, actually. And so it is nice and heavy in weight, but has a little bit of flex and give compared to some other types of board and can cut really easily. So I can cut through matte board using my rotary trimmer uh, because that's what it's made for mm-hmm. versus a lot of other heavier gauge chipboard, which aren't as easy to cut. And so what you'll get is a nice even cut, a good looking finished token, and you also, if you get offcuts from different sources like framing, so picture framers, you'll find that you can get different colors. And those colored backs, again, save you from having to 
make different colors for stickers and things like that. So uh, I use Matteboard a lot because it has all those properties that I like about it. Um, and with the Matteboard, in conjunction with that, another thing that I would highly recommend using instead of spray-on adhesive. So I've heard, I've heard, I've never used, but I've heard that uh, cosplayers, so people who run around conventions dressed up like yeah. people, uh, which is super cool. I, I've never done that, but I think it's so cool that people do it. Have this special adhesive that basically holds stuff onto you like it was cement for the day. Uh, and that could be a really good spray adhesive. But in my opinion, I prefer stickers. I prefer full full, full page stickers. So mm -hmm. I'll print out in color, full page sticker, and just stick that right to the board. I find it faster and less messy than adhesive spray. Uh, I also find it, it actually works and lasts longer. I have, you know, prototypes that are 10 years old that are basically falling apart mm -hmm. because the adhesive spray wears out after a while. So that's my own personal preference is full page sticker sheets. Plus you can print, you can print on a, a sticker. You can run that through yeah. your printer and print a map or yeah. print whatever on it and then just stick it on the board and you're good to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing I like about full page stickers is that we'll often, this is one thing we do, I do reclaim is, uh, like I'll go to the Goodwill and buy a $2 Scrabble board or something like that. And I'll just sticker onto the Scrabble board to make my game boards. And if I use adhesive spray and a piece of paper, you can see through mm -hmm. the paper, especially once you adhesive spray it. Uh, and stickers, full page stickers, you can buy just for like, a, you know, maybe a few cents more per sheet. You can buy blackout stickers that you cannot see through. Uh, they're made to cover up other stickers, right? Yeah. So that that's what I use for that. And they are great because you can sticker over things. And when you peel it up, it peels up pretty nicely. If you had a, a surface like a game board, you can uh, actually peel that sticker off eventually as well. So I prefer stickers. Um, you can print on a sheet of paper and, and easily spray glue it down. But in the end... I find that messier. I find that you can't play immediately, and I'm usually in a position where I have to print and run and go. <laughs> right. uh, so this way is something that I appreciate a little bit more. Um, baggies. So you, you end up looking like a drug dealer <laughs> right. when you go to the dollar store and buy $70 worth of little baggies. But what you end up with is a whole bunch of places to store all your components. So... One of the key things that uh, we do when we pitch to publishers live in con at conventions is we are super organized. And how we do that is baggies. Uh, baggies are great for a lot of reasons. So not only do we, we, we never box our games, we always put them in baggies. And the reason why is because we're traveling. And publishers also travel. And publishers actually, uh, from what we've heard, appreciate that they don't have to carry around our prototypes in a box. That's a good point. They like that it's in a bag, um, and we can actually, you know, if, if we had to, we would probably vacuum seal it and suck all the air out so there'd be even less space. But the, pro the, the idea here is that they don't have to have a box in their luggage that is crushable, that will break. They can see through the bag and see, oh, that's Jay's game or that's Sen's game. Uh, we can, you can write right on the bag. The only thing you lose with a baggie is protection for your parts, and then, um, like, recognition from the side. Mm -hmm. So it kind of has to be on top of a pile. But that's almost a good thing because they will usually put it on top of a pile because it's in a baggie. And it so doesn't stack. It doesn't stack. Right. So there, there are pluses and minuses to baggies for 
instead of a box for your game. But that's one thing. The oh, the organizational part of that though is that I bag each person's parts. So if it's a four-player game, I'll bag player one's part in one bag, player two's part mm. in another bag, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So then when I take it out to present it to pitch to a publisher, that was a whole lot of peas. It all gets put out in how it should be divided by play. And that just makes your pitches that much more crisp, right. that much more professional, and it means that you're not sorting through crap on the table while you're setting the game up. And it helps a lot in just chewing off that few seconds, minutes over the course of a whole playtest that allow you to get more time for the good stuff, which is like asking questions and getting feedback, you know, that kind of stuff, and signing contracts maybe, right? <laughs> right. Because you've only got you've only got a certain amount of time, and we're talking about minutes at a convention that a publisher has to really mm-hmm. look at your game. So anything you can do to make that process more efficient, that it's a good idea. So that's awesome. Yes, yeah. So baggies are a good thing. Um, looking at what else I have here. So tons of wooden bits, tons of plastic bits. If you are not near a teaching supply store, I highly advise going on to Google and uh, Amazon and ordering yourself a box or a container of like 500 centimeter cubes. Mm, yeah. So as a teacher, this is what we use as math manipulatives. We, we use these to teach kids how to do math. And they are wonderful for game design as well because really games are a lot of math. Um, and so having these manipulatives, cubes are good because they don't roll. Um, you can buy beads uh, and things like that, but beads typically will roll off the table and get lost and things like that. So I like cubes. Uh, poker chips are wonderful for a lot of other things. So I have boxes and boxes of poker chips. You can get, you know, really cheap poker chips at Walmart that come in this cool aluminum case that you can look like you're a spy when you walk around if you, you know, handcuff it to your, your <laughs> wrist. Uh, so poker chips are great for those types of things. Adhesives, so lots of different adhesives. I have like seven different types of glue, so at least. So there's glues specific use. This is something I try to tell my wife all the time because she just, she'll just grab any knife from the knife drawer and use it to cut whatever. Right. It's like, no, use the right tool for the job, right? And so the same thing applies to glues, that there are different types of glues for metal to metal, for metal to plastic, for plastic to plastic, for paper to paper. All those types of different substrates have different types of glues. So having the right types of glue will help your prototype stick together better. Um, a hot glue gun is a really good tool to have in terms of big pieces. So if you're trying to make new components or if you're trying to attach components to components, uh, sometimes a hot glue gun will see you through a lot of that. Just don't burn yourself. I've, I've got a lot of burns on my hands from that. In terms of other adhesives, I use elastics and electrical tape a lot. So just like I don't like coloring the backs of cards, I don't like painting or coloring components that I might use for something else. So I'll wrap a colored elastic around it hmm. or I'll or I'll put if it's a more square shape, I'll put electrical tape on it. So just cut a little piece of electrical tape, stick yeah. it on there. And electrical tape is super easy to remove as well. So I'll do that or I might, you know, depending on the shape of it, I might put a sticker on it. So you can get lots of, you know, Avery makes stickers of all sizes and shapes. And so if you have like a one inch disc, let's say you have a one inch disc that you want to put a a face of an orc on for your flicking dexterity fantasy dungeon crawler game. I think there's one out there already, right? (laughs) Don't make that game. There's already one. Uh, But if you had one, if you had an idea for one, 
And you can then take an Avery three-quarter inch sticker, run it through your printer, take that sticker off and stick it to your wooden piece. Then you can flick that wooden piece. It has that nice sticker on it. So um, sometimes stickers are better because you can print on them. But for bigger, chunkier pieces that need to be player colored, I'll often just use electrical tape, wrap it around it, and say, we're done. Or um, sometimes because it's a small, fine piece, I'll use uh, elastic and just kind of tie it up. So I have elastics in you know many different colors and electrical tape in many different colors. They're adhesives, but they're also uh, signifiers and colors. I'm looking through what else I got here. Velcro, don't use that too much, but sometimes. What about magnets? I had a guy ask me the other day about magnets. I love magnets. I would love to use magnets more. Um, magnets require usually require uh, an idea to actually go with it though. <laughs> and so i haven't had a great idea that uses magnets yet magnets are pretty expensive too but um like the neomidium ones are really cool so i would like to use those more i actually don't use my laminator for game design i use my lam- laminator for classroom activities so because i want them to be permanent and last through you know many many semesters so i don't typically laminate prototypes because why there's not a great reason to I do that. I guess if you needed a, a, a game board or a player mat that you wanted to have a dry erase marker yep. and use Actually, it I'm on. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing that right now. Oh, That's, cool. That is one thing I will laminate is I will laminate those types of things for dry erase. The other thing for dry erase, oh, if you don't have a laminator because you're not some kind of teacher <laughs> who owns a laminator right. for some reason, what I have done in the past and what I found really, really actually highly effective is using shelf liner. Do you know shelf liner? Like if you go to the – or um, drawer liner? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's got like the pretty uh, designs of the flowery things to kind of protect the shelves. Yeah, and you basically cut it and stick it in yeah. the bottom of your drawer on top yeah. of your shelf. Yeah, so that stuff, you can get it clear. And with the clear stuff, and it's adhesive on the bottom, right? So you can just stick it to anything in that you just made yourself a whiteboard. Cool. Because whiteboard has nothing to do with actually – well, it does, but not a ton to do with the, what you're drawing on. It has more to do with the marker itself. Okay. So um, anything that is non-porous can be written on with a whiteboard. Well, anything can be written on with a whiteboard marker. <laughs> but in order for it to wipe, wipe off, <laughs> right. it has to be non-porous, right? So if you have a non-porous anything, you can write on it with a whiteboard marker, and chances are the vast majority will come off. And here's another pro tip as a teacher. If you want to take whiteboard marker off a whiteboard that's been there for a while, write on it with another whiteboard marker. Mm. Like follow the exact same letter that you wrote with a whiteboard marker and it will come right off. It's because the whiteboard marker in and of itself, the chemicals in it will make it come off. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes that dries up when you leave whiteboard mm-hmm. marker on a whiteboard for a long time. Right. Anyways, that's just another pro tip. So yeah, uh, shelf liner makes a wonderful adhesive to a whiteboard if you're trying to make something. In terms of cardboard, that was another thing. If you need a lot of cardboard and you can't find it at like a framing place or a photo place, comic board, so the backing Mm -hmm. boards for comic books, is actually really good. Uh, If you just want really thin stuff that you can cut with a good pair of scissors, that is a good source of reliable cardboard and i say reliable in the fact that they're all the same dimension Mm -hmm. and that's important for uh, games where you have hidden information where you're turning your tiles over and you don't want anybody to know so if you can't get consistency in your thickness of 
cut and paper and cardboard, then sometimes that becomes a problem. And if you need a lot of cardboard, that's a good source for it as well, is, is comic book backing board. Um, other prototypes. I have a drill press here, uh, and we were talking about junk art before. Yeah. Uh, the drill press and the Dremel tool that I use in that drill press. It's a, it's, it's a Dremel tool with a drill press, mm-hmm. or a drill press with a Dremel tool built into it. Um, the Dremel tool was instrumental in figuring out how to do junk art. So a lot of times, if you get like a woodworker size, a carpentry sized router or drill press, you're going to be drilling like holes that are a quarter inch thick or a quarter inch in diameter and larger through things. And with fine, fine pieces that we're working on with games, you can't run a tool that that big through it or you'll smash, you'll crack the wood. Mm -hmm. So the Dremel tool being a lot smaller and finer allows us to work with the fine pieces that we're doing. So it has like routers that route very finely uh, instead of, you know, taking huge chunks out of the wood. Um, And so that's the kind of stuff that, you know, you, you kind of do need a little specialty tool for it that your classic wood shop tools may be too big for it. So the Dremel tool has been really helpful in developing a lot of the wooden prototypes. So parts that we've used for junk art and, and whatnot in, in the preliminary stages. We don't have a 3D printer. To be honest, um, I haven't been that impressed mm-hmm. with 3D printing in use in games yet. I mean, it's impressive to look at, but then you actually touch the piece and it's like, oh, it's kind of gritty mm-hmm. and it's not... Uh, exactly, you know, perfect. And so for the cost and the time, so the printing time is incredibly long as well. Uh, But for the cost of it, I would almost rather not at this point. The thing that I would like, though, that I don't have is a laser cutter. Uh, That I've been very impressed with the quality of stuff that I've gotten back from my friend who laser cuts for us. Just great quality work. Uh, at sufficient thicknesses, you know, can cut wood, can cut plastic, can cut uh, leather, can cut all these types of things. And now they're making them where we can do it at home. Mm-hmm. Maybe not at the same thicknesses, but that might be something to look into in the future is actually getting a laser cutter. Uh, that would probably, for what we're looking at anyways, have much more viability uh, over a 3D sculpted or printed product. Because we don't need to represent things in three dimensions all the time. Right. Sometimes the extruded kind of meeple shape is good enough or even better than having a 3D printed person. So I'm not so hyped on getting a 3D printer. I mean, if somebody wanted to give me one, I would gladly take it. But in the long run, I think a laser printer, sorry, not a laser printer, a laser cutter might be more effective for what my uses of it would be. Don't get me wrong, I think all that technology is super cool, and I would gladly have it. Uh, but if it push came to shove, I think it would be a laser cutter over many of the other types of, of forging machines that you see right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of them just aren't there yet. Like They're going to get yeah. there eventually, but they're just not yeah, yeah, quite yeah. there yet. Yeah. Other things I have, I'm looking over here, I have um, buckets and buckets of dice. Mm. Um, I use indented black, black blank dice. Uh, from, I think, indentedblankdice.com <laughs> to make prototypes with. I mean, you don't have to. 
you can easily put stickers over a regular D6, mm-hmm. and you'll have you'll have dice. But um, when I do that for uh, more professional-looking prototypes, mm-hmm. and get don't get me wrong, I am the absolute advocate of don't make your prototypes look that pretty. Yeah. Uh, I, I look at what we call you know, most viable prototype, minimal viable prototype is, mm-hmm. is what I look for. It's like, how little can I effort can I put into this to make it absolutely playable? But the one area that I do like to go a little bit overboard in isn't the graphics on it. Well, I like graphics, but not the illustration on it. Um, I go, we go overboard in designing the graphic design layout, mm-hmm. but also in componentry that is robust. So componentry that will not fall apart. Right. Which is why if it's sticker dice, I want indentations. So I'll, I'll go and put a sticker inside an indentation rather than on the surface of something so it won't peel off. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. It just makes it a little more robust. Uh, and then the other thing with that, you can get, like if you go to the dollar store, or not the dollar store, sorry, the Goodwill, where you will invariably find things like Dora's Yahtzee. Uh, that all has indented dice in it and you can just peel the stickers off and put new ones on or whatever. So I think that stuff is important. Dice. What else do I got over there? Just more cubes, like tons and tons of cubes. Sliders. Sliders are, uh, we've used sliders for a few things. Um, so sliders are like little clips that you clip onto paper or whatever to show, Originally, they were just basically to show that this is something you need to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because it can slide on the edge of a card, then you can use it to indicate different things like hit points or value of something if you have those printed on the sides of your card as well. So I have a bunch of those. Bags, um, lots and lots of bags. And I don't mean the clear bags that I use to store things. I mean like opaque bags for bag building games yeah. or for, uh, you know, something to draw out of a draw bag basically you have lots of those i have a whole center for old prototypes that i need to pull apart i have boxes of old cards and old card sleeves that i can use for that kind of thing um a lot of stuff is uh, we do have a lot of containers as well so just things to hold bits and parts in and prototypes in uh is very important to have access to that so one of the best things to do is uh, go to all your gamer friends and convince them that they should store their expansions in the main game box and then take all their expansion box from them because they're <laughs> there. That's what they were for anyways. And they make a really good box for prototypes. What I like to use for my prototype boxes, if I am going to box them are photo cases. So if you go to Michael's, you can get them for like, if they're on sale, I think they're like a buck 50 each. They're these little transparent, uh, maybe, I think they fit six by fours or maybe five by eights, six by fours, I think. Basically postcard size boxes, plastic boxes that will fit uh, photographs in them. And they're the perfect size for small games. Uh, You can fit two decks of cards, a bunch of dice and some counters in one of those. And they're great in terms of being able to label and see your prototype through the box because they're clear. You can get them in different colors, so you can sort your prototypes by color if you need to. You can get a carrying case for these cases, so you can have like 16 of these in a carrying case, which makes you look really cool when you bring that out at you know a protospiel and say, look at all my prototypes. Right. You can also 
use those. We actually use them as a guide, uh, oddly enough, to say, all right, let's make the game fit in this box. If anything can't fit in this box, it's out of the game mm-hmm. uh, type thing, for exceptions with maybe the board or something like that. So it helps us to kind of whittle away some parts that we think, okay, that might be extraneous to get to the core of the game faster. Lots and lots of dollar store stuff in this room, like cups and bowls and things like that. So cups for dice games, uh, bowls for games where you need to shoot and sort things. Lots of that kind of stuff. See what else is there. Oh, paints. I have paints for wood, things like that. Standees for stand uh, for making characters out of. Yeah, there's just a, a lot of stuff. I mean, my, my wife would probably say there's lots of junk, uh, <laughs> but... It's an organized junk. Oh, deck boxes. So just, you know, aftermarket Magic the Gathering kind of deck boxes. Those are also super cheap and really good to use for cards. The problem with them, though, uh, sometimes is that you don't have enough space. And if you're trying to shove everything in there, some of the photo boxes might actually be more effective. What else is there? Oh, there's my Dremel. Oh, one of the tools that I use all the time is called the Cropodile. It's made by... A company called We Are Memory Keepers. Okay. W E capital R and then Memory Keepers. I think so. It's a scrapbooking tool. Right. Uh, but it's a scrapbooking tool that <clears throat> you can feel good about using because it's huge and clunky. And what it's used for, uh, it's used for a couple things. But what I use it for is making dials. So, you know, King of Tokyo that yeah. has cool dials that you can kind of dial in your score or X Wing. Any of those types of games that have dials, the Cropodile allows you to make those things by uh, lining up holes and then punching brads or um, through those holes. Uh, you can do it other ways, but um, I find this is a nice way to do it because of how you can line up and measure things while using the specific tool. So the Cropodile is another tool that I use uh, a great deal. Um, let's think, what else is there? Wooden bits, just lots and lots of wooden bits, man. <laughs> Holy cow, there are lots of wooden bits. Oh, um, a good ruler. A good ruler will save your life. And the reason why I say that is because, I don't know if you can see this finger. Mm-hmm. Not the finger, but this finger that I'm holding up. I once sliced this finger from my nail bed all the way to my uh, second knuckle mm. with uh, an X-Acto knife uh, because I was holding a flat ruler down. And so I highly recommend getting rulers with a raised middle mm-hmm. so you can hold it like this. Nobody can see me do this, but you can hold it by the nub in the middle and then cut down the side. It's much safer, and you won't end up in the emergency losing lots of blood like right. I did. Yeah. Unless you just want to be really part of the game, part yes. of the prototype. Yeah. I put my blood, That's right. sweat, tears right into this game. <laughs> All in one moment. Pretty much. Um Markers, so Sharpies are invaluable. Just have like random stickers, random markers. I keep in a caddy. Oh, it's in the other room, so I can't show it to you. But I have a tool caddy that I bring with me uh, to design nights. And all it has in it is a bunch of other containers that store stuff. And the tool caddy has bingo chips. It has cubes of like 12 different colors. It has ponds of eight different colors it has blank dice it has standees um it has all my knives it has different types of containers 
for all these things. That's, you know, organize your tools and then you'll know where to find them and it makes life a lot easier. Matt Leacock, one of the things he uses a lot um, is fun foam or craft foam mm -hmm. and he'll use it like a 3D printer almost. So it's almost like an extrusion process. So it's not really 3D, uh, although the stuff he makes ends up being 3D. So he'll layer, so basically he'll cut out the same shape from a piece of craft foam and craft foam usually has an adhesive back, so then he'll just stick it onto another piece of craft foam that is the same shape, and another piece of craft foam that is the same shape. So eventually he has like an inch thick of craft foam yeah. that's the same shape vertically, and then he'll use a drill to drill down for holes to put pegs in and things like that. So if you look online, you can probably find his prototypes for Thunderbirds, Thunderbirds vehicles, and they're all craft foam where he cut out you know, little slots for the vehicles to sit in and things like that. Uh, so craft foam is a really neat way of getting height to your prototypes where you might need it to hold pegs or to hold shapes. And so um, we've done some stuff with craft foam. I do a lot of work with paper crafting in general. So I'll basically fold paper into shapes that hold things. So Akrotiri originally had paper ships that I made by hand that held cubes in it perfectly. So I'd make these paper ships that would hold cubes, uh, but I would just fold it up and glue it together. And then they basically took that and made it into the model that you see in Akrotiri. Um, so paper crafting, if you're good at it, you can get away with not having to make, you know, 3D printed things or make things out of wood. Paper is very, very versatile that way. Uh, and foam can help you if you need a lot of thickness. So if you don't want to fold 200 pieces of paper, you could use like three pieces of foam and get the same amount of volume out of it. What else is there? There's lots and lots of stuff though. Yeah. Well, one thing I'm curious about is how do you keep everything organized, especially like if you, cause you work on a lot of games at the same time. Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of keep everything organized where, you know, you're not losing pieces or losing track of stuff? Uh, well, first of all, I keep it organized virtually. So using Google docs or our forum, so Jay and I have a private forum that oftentimes other designers will be on as well, where we organize stuff there. So for me, it's actually more important to be mentally organized for documentation than it is physically for prototypes. After that, for prototyping, though, um, everything's in its own box, in its own location, and labeled uh, as well as possible. I don't. I keep stuff in boxes when it's at my house. I don't put it into bags until it goes to a convention uh, because, yes, I would lose it in that way because there's so many of them. But uh, they, they get put on a certain shelf. So shelf, the top shelves are usually the ones for prototypes that I'm not working on now because I can't reach them. I'm so short. Can't reach them, won't want to work on them. So the prototypes that are in the middle at the send level, uh, those are the ones that I work on. And so they're all boxed and labeled and stacked in that area. And oftentimes that helps to really also, um, almost like a Kanban board, you know, these prototypes I'm working on, these prototypes I'm taking out, these prototypes are moved from working on to being evaluated by a publisher. These ones are going to get taken from the working on to, a, you know, the back burner shelf where it's like, we don't want to work on this right now. So just organizing stuff visually and spatially, as well as mentally helps to get it um, in a organized form and a workflow for us as well. So 
Yeah, and that's a great point. So you, you've talked a lot about the different stuff you've got, you know, and you've, I mean, that's a ton of information. And so if, if a new designer is listening to this, haven't really gotten into it yet or really just kind of testing the waters, give me like the basic core stuff or core things they need to have to really get going. To really get going? Yeah. Uh, paper like a, and paper a marker. Well, <laughs> I mean, paper and a marker – uh, a, a good paper cutter is going to be your friend. Uh, it'll save you a lot of time and effort. You could use scissors, or you could use an X-Acto knife and a, and a ruler. But in the end, the, a guided paper cutter, uh, I find rotary trimmers better than guillotines for drift. They are going to save an effort. Um, paper, pen, and a paper cutter. That's where you should start. Um, after that, it's just a question of accumulating bits to represent your ideas in reality, right? So dice, meeples, cubes, all that kind of stuff. Do go get some of that. I think centimeter cubes are so versatile that you you should just get them even if you don't think you need them. If you go to the dollar store, you can get bigger cubes, and they're fine, and they're cheap. You can get that. That's totally fine. They just become an issue in terms of volume when you have lots and lots of them. So that's why, you know, 8-millimeter cubes to 10-millimeter cubes are usually what we use standard in games. Other things that you should probably get, I mean, if you don't have a computer and a printer, I'm not sure how you're listening to this, but uh, those are things that you should invest in as well. Although I have a friend, uh, Yves Tournier, who really just goes to Staples all the time and prints mm -hmm. um, because they, they'll print out a full black sheet for you without caring right. because... They don't care. Uh, whereas when you do it at home, you're going, oh, my God, it's full black. And you're like, oh, that ink. Ah. Right. Right. So you might use a print service or some things. And he's found ways of getting them to actually cut cards for them and whatnot. So there's there's probably more out there than I know in terms of using a, a printer service. I just like doing all that kind of stuff myself. I find it relaxing and therapeutic at times. Mm -hmm. What else is there? Uh, yeah. I, I You know, I, I think that's really where to start is getting yourself a way to cut paper, a way to mark on paper, and then a way to represent other ideas and forms physically on the table. That's sort of the bottom line. Then everything after that is just more refined or better ways to do things. And it's not that they're better in that you're you know wrong if you do it the other way. They're just better in the way that they might look more like something or it's cheaper or faster or more efficient because there's nothing wrong with using scissors to cut. Right. Go ahead, use scissors to cut. That's great. They do the job. The outcome is the same. It's just mm -hmm. how did you get to that outcome? How much time did it take you to get to that outcome? <clears throat> so if you're a person with one single design who is working on one game and one game only, you know, you no, you don't need to invest 60 bucks, 80 bucks in a rotary trimmer. I make, you know, seven games a, at a time. So having a rotary trimmer is just really allowing me to have more time to make more games. Uh, so I, I don't think there's really anything you absolutely need, but there are things that without them, I couldn't do what I do. If that makes right. sense. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of people who don't like card sleeves who want to have their cards looking nice and have rounded corners and printed on cardstock. Totally fine. Do it. That's great. As long as it's not costing you time and money that you, could be better investing somewhere else in the game design process that's cool and a lot of people that are in game design 
are graphic designers or illustrators by na- by their day job anyways, and so they really like to make their stuff look good. In the end, it's going to garner a little more in terms of audience, but it doesn't make the game quote unquote better in the end. Right. So we don't invest tons on that. Right. And the biggest thing when you're just starting out is realize you don't have to do all that. You don't have to go out and, and spend all this money, buy all these tools, all this stuff, literally paper and a pen and a pair of scissors. And you and you can start creating some, some interesting games. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Right. The, the whole idea is get it out of your head. Yeah. Whatever you need, whatever you need to get that out of your head onto the table is really what you should be getting. That's the bottom line, really, when you right. think about it. Uh, for some people, it may be, I need for it to look good, so I need to use it, do it on the computer, and then print it, and then cut it out, and sleeve it, and make it look good. That's fine. If that's you, that's great. You'll soon learn, <laughs> hopefully, that sometimes it's better to put it in pen and paper on old cards in you know penny sleeves first, to see if it's worth investing the time yeah. to make it look that pretty, right? So, but that's that, you only learn that through experience, and you only learn that through trying and and re- recognizing how much you invested the first time to make something that you had to go back and change the second after it hit the table. Right. So, that goes back to the other kind of design ethic that most people in the business are now, you know, adhering to, which is fail faster. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just like get that on the table. Make it fail, break it, go back and change it. And if you invested a lot of time to make it look pretty and to put it in the you know the exact right components, maybe that's not where the effort should have gone. Or at least salvage some of that so that the next time it's faster. right? So I, I think it's a learning process for sure. And don't get me wrong, we made all sorts of funny mistakes prototyping when we started out too. Like we would actually put stickers on the back of all the tiles to make it look pretty, right? And right. have have the name of the game on the back of the tiles. Just like, you know, like um, if you open up a, a Ravensburger game and turn over any of the tiles, it just says Ravensburger mm-hmm. in, in their logo, you know, across the back of the tile multiple times. And it looks awesome. And so we did that for a lot of our first prototypes just because we thought it looked cool. But in the end, uh, looking cool is not as important as it being a good game. There is a point where if you show a publisher something that is, you know, handwritten on the back of a pizza box. <laughs> a crayon. Yeah, that they're going to maybe thumb their nose at it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Most really professional publishers will say, okay, let's see what you got. And, and just kind of suspend disbelief for a little mm-hmm. while. But there are a lot of young publishers in the game right now with the advent of well, advent with Kickstarter and crowdfunding, it's not really an advent. That's like so 2013. Yeah. Um, that there's a lot of publishers out there that don't know how to get past their implicit bias of you know, oh, it's beautiful and shiny mm-hmm. yet, and maybe they'll get past that someday. But a prototype doesn't. A prototype by its nature doesn't have to be good looking. It has to function. Yeah. Right. So function over form, but recognizing that form is important. Right. Another thing I think people need to always be aware of is, you know, if you spent so much time on this prototype, on the all this thing, like invested so much time, psychologically people can feel pot committed, so to speak, where they've invested so much that so now they've got to see it through to the end. Well, if it's yeah. not any good, you need to just 
step away. And so don't invest all this money and all this time and all this stuff because it might keep you in, keep you working on a game that you really should have walked away from. Yep. Definitely shelve your games, murder your darlings as it's called. Just, you know, yep. have, have the ability to say, yeah, this isn't working. I'm going to put it away and something good may come of it later. You may learn how to fix that problem by working on another game, uh, by making another prototype. You may fix, Oh, you may learn how to make that component better. Right. So, there's a lot of value in trying, but there's also a lot of value in recognizing when it's time to, you know, cut your losses and walk away from a project that isn't necessarily doing what you want it to do. Right. I mean, that's a pro- that's that's a whole discussion itself. But emergent yeah. game design, let the game be what it wants to be. Don't try to force it to be something it can't be. Yep. And oftentimes, if you're banging your head against the wall, trying to force it to become something, it might be the wrong thing to be doing, right? And the right, right. thing to be doing is either cutting something out or just putting it all away. And right. you can come back to it later. You'll have more games. You'll have more ideas. This isn't the only idea you're going to have. If you're truly a game designer, it's not the only ga- a game you're ever going to make. So Yeah. That's like last night. I, I've been working on this this battle system for a game, and I had a really really good idea for the way it should work Hmm. but it won't work like i just keep doing it and it's like this is not what i want and so last night i had another idea and it's like gosh i don't i hate to walk away from that really good idea but that's not what the game wants to do and so it's just like all right let's go do something else because that's just otherwise the game is going to sit in that spot forever as i try to make something work that's just not going to work yeah exactly well, cool. Well, Sin, man, really appreciate your time. Um, we're going to actually go into a, a quick bonus round here in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on where to find good prototype pieces. You know, you mentioned the dollar store. You mentioned Goodwill. Uh, I'm sure you've got a few more uh, pro tips as far as, like, how to find really cool pieces for your game. So we're going to do that in a bonus round. You can uh, check, that over, check that out over at BoardGameDesignLab.com. But, man, Sin, really appreciate your insight and, uh, and, and everything you've you provided with this. No problem. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?